morning. I'm excited to be in the Word with you today. We're going to start off in Philippians chapter 3. If you get to Philippians chapter 3, now remembering uh, before we get there that uh, this is a different kind of series. We are doing more of a systematic theology approach, a doctrinal approach. We'll be hitting a lot of different places in Scripture. I don't think you can keep up with me to write them all down, so please just let the Lord's Spirit move in you to wash the Word over you. And then if you want these notes, you email me, call me, text me. I'll be glad to send them to you uh, at your convenience, uh, and maybe at my convenience too. And uh, some of you, I think, may have even asked this week, and I didn't get the last ones to you, so remind me and I will get them to you uh, as fast as I can this week. It's been kind of a crazy week getting ready for all the stuff going on. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to move on into our time together. So, Father, we, we are in your presence today because we know that you promised us that when we are gathered in your name to do your work or to be a part of listening to your word, that you would be with us. So, Lord, we know you're here. Your Holy Spirit resides within us individually and corporately as we gather. Lord, also, we ask for you to lead us through the word today, that as we look at a difficult doctrine, that you would be the one who gets the glory, that we would be encouraged and edified as a faith family, and that we would see our need to be different in light of the truths that you reveal, and that we would act and live differently to others as well. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week we talk about the beginning of the third part of angels, demons, and dead people. In fact, this last part is in two parts, and this week we're going to talk about the doctrine of hell. In fact, I've called it, called it the holy horrors of hell for this kind of episode of our series because it is, in fact, horrible, and it is a, a part of God's holiness that this would occur. And what I want to do is something similar to what we've been doing. I'm going to address misconceptions. I'm going to run through scriptures as we go, but let me just start off by talking a little bit about the culture we live in. That while you may think that more and more people are not believing in heaven or in hell, I want to give you a poll from just a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago from CBS News. Uh, this poll stated that of all the people that participated in their poll, 82% of them said that they would be going to heaven. 82%. Those are big numbers, by the way, right? I mean, Jesus said that, that few will find the way, and this is 82% said that they are going to heaven. And you won't be surprised by this number, and it's kind of funny but kind of not, that 2% said they were headed to hell. And so very low numbers of people think that they're actually going to go to hell. Uh, a large number think they're going to heaven, and some just are undecided or don't care or don't believe in it. And so even though we see a lot of people that are leaving the church and are walking away from that or have never been a part of a church, we see a number that is about the same as it has been for several decades of people that think that they're going to heaven and then the few that will claim that they believe they're going to hell. Uh, you might be surprised to know that of all the people in the New Testament that talk about hell, Jesus talks about it more than anybody else. Did you realize that? In fact, he uses two different words to refer to it, plus different phrasings to, to kind of allude to it. But the word he uses the most is the word Gehenna. 
That word Gehenna comes from the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, it's actually a valley south of Jerusalem. It's the place where in Jeremiah we see that children were slaughtered in worship to false gods. Um, we also know that that place was a garbage dump of its own, that there were people that would take their garbage out there. It was continually burning. There was black smoke rising from it all the time. And in fact, it was also a place where they would bury criminals out there in the day of Jesus. And so people at that point in time had come to use that name, Gehenna, that word, to refer to that place, which was supposed to be some kind of metaphor or imagery for the condemnation that would come against those from God uh, for all those who did not believe in God and did not follow his path. And so when Jesus hit the stage, he used that word mostly. He also used the word Hades. He used the word destruction. He used the word condemnation. We see that throughout the scriptures as well. Um, And we see the word in the Old Testament, Sheol, which we're not going to get into too much, talking about death. We see it further along in the New Testament, though, the word Gehenna used for hell. Now, I will say, along with a bunch of other guys I've read, I agree with what they say, and many of them say together, um, that if I, if I was the devil, some people have thought so much, probably at certain points, if I was the devil, I would probably do my best to convince you that hell doesn't exist. And so a lot of people probably lean into a camp where we won't probably say that in the South. We all kind of believe hell exists at some level, but we live in such a way, even within the church, that we don't act speak, make decisions, do things in life that are based off the truth that hell really is real. In fact, one pastor said, he said, if you don't accept the realities of hell, you'll never really appreciate the glory of the gospel. And that is a definite truth. In order for us to really understand what we've been saved from, that then gives us context to understand how great that salvation is. And so the more we understand about what we've been saved from, the better we can worship the one who has saved us. So I want us to speak about it today in a way that we understand that it should, in, it should change something about us so that we worship rightly the God who created us to reflect his glory. And the God who created us to do that knows that we have all failed to reflect that glory continually, that we mess up, we fail, we don't do the things we should do, we do the things we should not do. We do not live up to the standard of holiness and perfection that he has set for us by making us in his image. And so therefore, we are all sinners. We've missed the mark. And we therefore deserve to be condemned for that. If you have a faulty tool in the shed that you cannot get to do the job it was made to do, you get rid of it, you throw it in the fire, and you get another one to replace it. God has not done that with us. We live in in between time after Jesus, before he comes to take us home, and we have opportunities now to put our hope in Jesus for what he did for us on the cross. Because while we cannot meet the standard, Jesus has met the standard. He lived life perfectly, the life we could not live, and died the death that we all deserve, incurring all the wrath on him that we should incur for all eternity. He drank it down on the cross and died in our place so that we could be reunited with him and his victory and resurrection over death. And so because of what he's done for us, we're going to talk about something today that's really difficult to talk about, or at least it should be. In fact, I'm going to encourage you not to talk about this topic again until God breaks your heart over this doctrine. In fact, I'll say it like this. We have to speak of hell in the right context. One of obedient commitment to truth, but also with a broken heart. And I'm 
as guilty as any other to sometimes do what I kind of joke with my doctor friends about them doing, which is kind of losing the bedside manner and getting caught up and talking about something so normally all the time when really we should be overwhelmed by the subject matter. In fact, look at Philippians 3. This is where we'll start. This is the beginning of the marathon that will be run fast. Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. In fact, I'll, I'm going to jump back to 17 real quick. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction or hell. Their God is their belly. Their God is their desires, the things that satisfy them. They go against the Lord. And they're, they're, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things, not heavenly things. At verse 18 again, at the end of it, it says that, I've often told you, now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. If we are not broken over those who are not yet in God's family, then we are not seeing things the way God sees them, and we are not, again, reflecting His glory correctly. So let us be broken over this subject today. Lord, would you break our hearts, Lord, for people that do not know you and are destined for this place at this time. Let us be mouthpieces of the gospel. We've got to talk about it when you do so with a broken heart. 1 Thessalonians 5.3, while people are saying, and here's what we hear all around, there's peace and security. We talked about it a few minutes ago in our meeting. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Hell will come with fury and wrath unleashed, and it will come in a moment without warning for most of us. We will not see it coming. We may think we see it on the horizon, but it will get us at a moment where we are not ready, most of us, for that transition. And hell is a place of horrible suffering and pain. That's the truth of the matter. I believe the scriptures point to a real, literal hell, a place that we will endure if we are not found to be in Christ. Matthew 8, 11 through 12, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, this is in a negative light, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. He's talking about Israelites that won't believe. Even us. Sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. R.C. Sproul says there's two types of people in hell. Those that are overwhelmed with recognizing that they should have repented and believed in Jesus, and therefore they are those that are weeping and sobbing uncontrollably and continually for how they have failed to not believe in the Savior. And then there are those who will be angry at God, vehemently mad that He would ever think He could do this to them. And they will be gnashing their teeth in the outer darkness. If you think of gnashing of teeth, a good illustration that's in my mind about that when I read it, it's like some almost rabid dog trying to get through the fence. It's something uncontrollably trying to bite through the fence and gnashing of teeth. This is what's described as what hell will be like. Not a place where you get to hang out with your buddies and do what you want to do, right? 
Not a place that any of us really want to see. Revelation 20, 14 through 15 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is real. This is hot. This is forever. It is suffering. It is anguish. It is horrible. This is what's described as hell. And if we believe hell exists... It will change how we live. That is just a statement of fact. If we really believe hell exists, we will live in accordance with that truth. Let me give some misconceptions. This first one will be almost an aside. It'll feel like it'll take up a lot of our time. It's really important, though. When I talk to people about dead people, I oftentimes hear a lot of things that you may not even believe. In fact, I do a lot of funerals. I haven't done so many since I've been here, but in my time as a minister, I've been a part of quite a few funerals, and I hear crazy things. People would call crazy, okay? Things that you would say, well, that's crazy. I've never heard of that before. Things happen in funerals you wouldn't happen anywhere else. You've probably been to a few of them, right? I was in the middle of one one time where I'd been fed some information that wasn't true about somebody, and I spoke it out, and I had people in the crowd, like, tell me I was wrong. Like, that was a rough time. It was kind of crazy, okay? Things happen. But oftentimes, the things that catch me off guard are when people talk about the people visiting them after they died. I always get a little nervous when there's a time at a funeral where somebody can get up and just say whatever they want to say. You know, sometimes it works out really well. Sometimes it can get a little bit, you know, outside the box. Let me say this to you. There's a misconception out there that dead people roam the earth as ghosts. We don't see that in Scripture. We don't see that at all. In fact, I would just say, point out, I think pretty much, I can say it safely in Scripture, dead people don't roam the earth. Here's some biblical backup for that. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you haven't been visited by something. I'm not saying you haven't had an experience with something or someone, but I'm telling you that that's not what people normally do, is not roam the earth when they die. In fact, Luke 23, 43, Jesus said to the guy beside him on the other cross that he said he believed in him, he said, Today I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It means today, right now, we're about to die, and you're going to be with me in paradise. To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. That's what we see. As believers, you close your eyes, let out your last breath, and you inhale the presence of God in the next moment. There is no divide. Today you'll be with me in paradise, he says. 1 John 4, 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit. If somebody shows up in your house and says they're Uncle Joe, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and we know that even Satan will masquerade as an angel of light, right, even though he's an angel of darkness. So it's more likely that anyone trying to practice what the Bible calls divination or trying to conjure up spirits or being a medium to intersect you with somebody of your past, or whether you're trying to do it with a Ouija board, whatever it is, anybody trying to practice that is actually tapping into the, the demonic. That's the most likely scenario. You may think, well, where would I get that from? I'm glad you asked. The Bible. You're not summoning the dead. You're summoning evil angels. Here we go. Acts 16, 16 through 18. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Same word here for sorcery. Uh, the Greek word is what we use pharmacy from. 
pretend not to be pharmacists or not sorcerers. I'm just saying that's the word that's used there. And that's to mean that the potions were used in this to give to people or take themselves to connect with the dead, they thought. Okay, so a spirit of divination was on this girl and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. This girl had a spirit on her that would enable her to do fortune telling. That doesn't mean she told the future necessarily. It means she told people things about them or things they wanted to know about things. Okay, that's what would happen. Made a lot of money for the guys that owned her. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Okay, that's crazy, land, isn't it? Not a dead person. She's conjuring up a demon doing that. Now, have we, last time we talked about this, I'm not going to go in depth, but demons have been around for a long time. They've been taking notes on people for a long time. They, they could be around you and watch what you watch and see what you see and hear what you say and talk about all the things you want to talk about in your own private place. It's not private from the demonic or angels of light, the angels in the presence of the Lord, the, the activity of the Lord's work. Not hidden from them anything we do or say if they want to be in our presence and see or hear those things. And so it's very possible this could be what you're experiencing. Someone that could manifest themselves in the Old Testament. We see angels showing up as men. We see angels showing up in the New Testament with glowing personas on them, right? Light, bright colors. We also see angels showing their wings in a certain place in the Isaiah 6. Uh, we see all kinds of manifestations so it's very possible could be that a demon takes some kind of form, manifests itself as your Uncle Joe. I, don't, I hope you don't have an Uncle Joe that's dead. I'm just saying that as an example. As your Uncle Joe or anything else and tell you whatever they want to tell you to mess with you. You need to test those spirits as from the Lord or not. Pray, ask the Lord to reveal. But I'm going to throw some of you a curveball. Are you ready? Good, these guys are always on. Good. There are two examples of dead people possibly appearing to the living in the scriptures. One for sure and one possibly. Okay? The first one of those is a for sure. That's the transfiguration. When Jesus went up onto the mount to be transfigured, he had some disciples with him. And when he was there, Moses and Elijah appeared and were talking with Jesus. It threw Peter off. Peter's like, hey, let me, let me build you all some tents. Because that's what dead people and Jesus need are some tents, Right? Let me build you a tabernacle to stay in, to, to, to like worship you here, you know? And then we see the other example is in Samuel. Now, do you remember the story where Saul has been told by Samuel he's not going to be king anymore, David's going to be the king, and um, Saul just continues to go downhill over and over again, not doing what God said, doing the things God said not to do, he's doing those things, and there's continual going back and forth. You see Saul just downhill, downhill, downhill. And then we see that right at the end here, Samuel dies, and they bury him. And in 1 Samuel 28, you run into uh, Saul getting really upset because he's praying. He walks outside, and he sees the Philistine army, and he's like, oh, no, they're going to kill us, literally. And he's like, Lord, tell me what to do. No answer. Goes to the prophets, tell me what to do. What's God saying? No answer. God's not saying a thing. So then he says to some of his men, he says, hey, is there any of those mediums around, those necromancers that I cast out because God said to get rid of them? Is there any more of them left anymore? And one's like, well, there's this lady in Endor, a medium of Endor, a witch of Endor. You know, you can go get, talk to her. So this is where we pick up the story real quick. He goes and does something with somebody he's been trying to get rid of based off what God says. He's going to the person he shouldn't go to. 
Let's see what happens. So Saul says in 1 Samuel 28, 8, Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. So he's concealing who he is. So nobody can see him doing this bad thing. And then they came to the woman by night, again, under the cover of darkness, hiding, right? And it says, he said to her, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, surely you know that Saul, what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. Okay, wait. Saul's doing what he shouldn't do, and he swears to her by the Lord. Listen to what he says. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. I'm not going to go back and quote all the scriptures that say if you do necromancy or if you do divination that you should be stoned and God will like throw you into the outer darkness. I'm not going to be sure. There's all over the place in the Old Testament, okay? And he's saying, no, the Lord won't do that to you, I promise, right? Like, he's, again, the opposite of what God would do. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. Listen to this. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. She was surprised. Like, oh, oh moly moly, right? He's really here. <laughs> like a surprise, like I wasn't expecting him to come, you know. This, maybe this is the first time this has ever happened where somebody really showed up when she did this. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. The woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? The woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. By the way, that word for God is Elohim, which is the Hebrew plural form of God. It's almost like the narrator is being funny. And say, that's not a God. It'd be like plural gods, little g. It's just one guy. Okay, it's Samuel. That's the illustration here, right? I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up. He is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, the text says Samuel said it. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord's turned you from you, turned from you and become your enemy? He's like, Why are you coming to the prophet who hears from the Lord? You know, he's not talking to you, he's not gonna talk to me either. For you. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. So it does appear in this passage to be that it is Samuel who visits based off of a straightforward reading of this text. We can't be 100% sure. It could be a demon saying that he's Samuel. We don't know, but it looks like it's Samuel. If you read it plainly, the narrator seems to think it's Samuel. So what do we make of this? I mean, this is the only time we see evidence of something like this in Scripture. Even here, it seems to be like a first-time experience for this lady, right? She freaks out when he shows up. She cries out with a loud voice. So what are we to make of this? Well, we need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. That helps. It's hard to do that with no other examples, but here are some other things talked about. In fact, Jesus tells a story of a rich man and a beggar. Remember that story? Lazarus the beggar, the rich man, and had a guy outside at his gate all the time. He had sores all over his body, and he'd beg for food oftentimes. The dogs would come up and try to lick his sores. 
um, and this guy died, and so did the rich man where he lived, and uh, they, were, they were in different places. The, the poor guy was in heaven, and the rich guy was in hell. It says he's in Hades, verse 23. And Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. In other words, you're stuck where you are. Not coming back to the earth, not going over to heaven, you're where you're supposed to be. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. So you see, the implication here is, is that that's not the way we do things around here. Right? So... We also see places in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 8, so we're of good courage, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, right? Away from the body, present with the Lord. Hebrews 9, 27 says something similar, appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. Now listen, we are supernaturalists, church. We are supernaturalists. We believe in angels, demons. We believe they exist. We believe Jesus literally was God, is God become a man, that's supernatural, that he died on the cross for our sins, rose in victory over death, resurrection, that's supernatural. We are supernaturalists, right? So based off the biblical evidence, we can't say it's definitely impossible for such a thing to happen, necromancy, but we can say it's sinful to seek such things out, even dangerous to do so. Here's what I mean by that. Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12, the Bible says, There shall not be found anyone among you who burns his son or daughter as an offering, or anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or anyone who inquires of the dead. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Leviticus 19, 31. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out. And so make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. In other words, don't seek them out and don't be one. So don't be playing with Ouija boards. Don't be trying to go get your fortune told. Don't be trying to go raise the dead and hear a word from somebody in the past to give you an answer where they buried the gold. Like none of that stuff. Don't do it. You're practicing divination. It's an abomination to the Lord. In fact, what we see here is that the actions that Saul took, God considers them sinful rebellion. In 1 Chronicles 10, we see it said of him, So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord and that he did not keep the commandment of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So, in fact, the way he's talking about it here. Seeking out necromancers, seeking out to speak with the dead, those type of things, those things are seen as, as, as idolatry. Here's what I mean by that. 
If you are saying that you're praying and God isn't giving you the answer you want, and that's not enough for you to have God and whatever he gives you, so you're going to go a step beyond and find something else to give you what you want, you are therefore worshiping something other than God at that point and saying that is going to be your master. And that is the essence of idolatry. So seer clear. Right? Isaiah 8, 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? They don't talk to people about dead people. Talk to God. He's the one in control. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? James 1, 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Or how about this, Romans 16, 19 from last week, remember? For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Seek after the things that are good, things that are holy, the things that are of the Lord. Be innocent to the other stuff. Don't get mixed up in that junk. Or Galatians 5, 19 talks about sorcery, divination, and it says, I warn you, as I, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a strong warning. That's in the same list where we have also, by the way, drunkenness, orgies, enmity, idolatry, sensuality, strife, jealousy, all those things, divisions. Look, that stuff, we believe in supernatural. Angels are real. Demons are real. Samuel appearing seems to be real. Moses, Elijah showing up at the transfiguration, real. We're not supposed to mess with that stuff. If God does something crazy, that's great. God can do that. We're not to seek out those things. We're to seek the Lord. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, not a follower of the dead. He's alive. We serve the alive king. You ready to get back to hell? Nobody will say yes to that. Let's move back to the subject of hell. Misconception. A loving God would not send people to hell. You heard that before? Let me just say this as briefly as I can to sum it up. Because God loves, he has to love in accordance with all things that are good, right, and holy because he is holy. And because we are not good, right, and holy, we do not do what we should do. We do, not, we do the things we should not do. Because all those things are real, there's a problem with his showing his love to us because he's also not just loving, he is just. And if he overlooks our sin, our rebellion against the way he made us to be to reflect his glory, then he cannot remain just. And his character is now in jeopardy. His integrity is in jeopardy. So if someone says like, Man, a loving God would not send people to hell. They don't recognize the fact that, yes, a loving God would send people to hell because people go to hell not because God wants them there, but because God lets them go where they want to go. People that don't want God will end up in a place where God is not there in a good way. They don't want to be in his mercy now. They don't want to be in it later. They don't want to be in his grace now. They don't want to be in it later. C.S. Lewis said it best, I think, when he said it in his own words, basically that hell's locked from the inside. People in hell want to be in hell. They don't want to be in the presence of God, even though it's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a fulfillment of what they've desired in its fullest. They don't want something different just because they're there. It's the fleshing out of those things. 
Does God love so much he sent people to hell? Yes, he loves so much that even though all of us deserve to go to hell, he would send his one and only son who's perfect, who's worth more than all of us put together, to come and become one of us, who would then live the life we could never live and then die the death that we deserve, taking down the wrath we should incur for all of eternity in hell. He took it all down on the cross for us so that when, when he became victory, victorious over Satan, sin, death, and hell on the cross and rose in victory, that then if we would just believe on him as our Savior to love him because he first loved us, we would be redeemed and brought into the family. That's the kind of love that God shows. That he would bring us in even though we don't deserve it. That he would do whatever it took, taking his best and giving it for those who are the worst. That's the good news of the gospel. That is how God loves. It's way beyond just some God who doesn't send people to hell because that would be unjust. And God remains just because he punished his son in our place. In our place, he stood condemned, so God is just in doing that. And now he brings us into the family. When he looks at us, he does not see sinners. He sees the righteousness of his son Jesus displayed on us. What a glorious, loving God we serve. What a good God we serve. And hell... This place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked is real. Jesus talks about it all over. I'm just going to read one of them, Mark 9, 42 through 49. Jesus' own words. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Terminology, unquenchable, never goes out, never is done consuming. It's eternal. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Okay, That means the idea is that worms will continue to eat you for all of eternity is the idea there. Horrible pain, suffering, death, ongoing, always, consciously right? And that the fire does never go out. It is not quenched. It says, for everyone will be salted with fire. It's purification ongoing for all of eternity. You never get there because that's how sinful we really are and how holy he really is. And we won't ever taste of it if you found your hope in Jesus. But that's the reality of the unquenchable hell in hell. When we believe hell exists, it will change how we live, which is true. Another misconception, a loving God could not be worshipped if he sends people to hell. You heard people say that, I can't worship a God like that. Who can worship a God like that? I can tell you who, all of creation will worship a God like that. We see a picture of it in Revelation 19. Some of you are going to struggle with this. This is true. When God sends people to hell, this is what's going to happen right after. Listen to this, Revelation 19, 1 through 4. After this, I heard what seemed the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, 
Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immortality or immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! God will get glory whether people believe in Jesus or not because he will get glory because he deserves glory. That's just the way it's going to work. And while it is not for us to be able to understand in its fullness, it is easy to understand that when he does something that is in line with his character, that means he does what he is always going to do, which means it is a part of him getting glory. Another misconception. This is going to touch some toes here. You ready? Okay, thank you. Misconception is that hell is separation from God. Have you heard that before? It's being separated from God. Now, that's, that comes out of an emotional desire to understand the truth and out of some bad exegesis. I, I've been taught it. I understand. I've said it many times before, but it's not necessarily true. It, it actually, I don't think it's right. Hell is not separation from God. Here's where it comes from. Let me give you the one text where people get this from. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 9. I'm just going to get down to the very end of it. It says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. You're like, well, it is away from Him. He's not there. Wait a minute. We have to put that together with all the other passages that talk about hell. Let me give you just two of them. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, Jesus says, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Not conclusive, you might say. Okay, Revelation 14, 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur, listen, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name, those in hell, will be in the presence of the Lamb. So when you put those things together, I think what it's saying, when you look at all the Scripture together, is that they will not be in the presence of God's mercy. They will not be in the presence of God's kindness. They will not be in the presence of God's grace. They will not be in the presence of God's forgiveness. But they will definitely be in the presence of God pouring out His just wrath, His judgment on them. And when you understand that truth about hell, God is all places at all times. He cannot be anywhere where God is, is not. Hell is no different. We see the Old Testament all the way through the New. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is the one doling out a lot of the punishment from God. We see it no different here. God presence there in the condemnation. When you believe stuff like this about hell, it changes how you live. You don't have to be afraid of the fire. Be afraid of God's wrath on you. 
Here's another misconception. This is a short one. Heaven is for people who have a personal relationship with God, and hell is for people who don't have a personal relationship with God. Nope. Sorry. In the end, we're all going to have a very personal relationship with God. Those in heaven will have a personal relationship with their Father who's shown them much mercy and grace and adopted them into the family through Jesus. And those in hell will have a very personal relationship with God the judge. And he'll be pouring it out in a very real personal way. Another part of that misconception, Satan is king in hell. You seen those cartoons? Remember those? Satan's having a good old time, hanging out in hell, waiting for others to arrive putting him in the chains, being the guy in charge. Satan is not the king in hell. Jesus is the king everywhere, including hell. He's the one in charge. Listen to this, 2 Timothy 4.1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Acts 10.42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. John 5. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Let me tell you this too, just so you understand this. While he is the one executing judgment, God would much rather save you than send you to hell. That's replete throughout Scripture. He has no pleasure in sending people to hell. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. Say to them, God says, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? He's begging them to repent. Or Jesus, and Jesus, broken heart. We're to be like Christ, Christian, right? We think of hell, it should break our hearts. Jesus walking up the hill to Jerusalem, going in, about to defeat the enemy, looks over Jerusalem and it says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. He looks at us the same way and says, Man, just come over here. Come back to me. I'm here for you. You don't have to go this way. Why are you going that way? You don't have to go that way. I, I died for you. Come to me. Don't go to destruction. Come to me. For my burden is light. I give rest to those who are heavy burdened. But rest assured that God will send people to hell. He will do it. Those who are not saved by the sacrifice of his son Jesus, those who do not put their hope in the only son, the only sacrifice, the only one who appeases the wrath of God, Jesus, his one and only son who died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he will punish those who do not believe in him, who do not trust in him, who do not love him because he first loved them. Ezekiel again, 18. Listen to these words. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he's committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But 
when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed for them he shall die. Put it in different language for us. Just because you grew up in church, just because you read your Bible every day, just because you pray, just because you've been a part of this church for 20 years, 50 years, 5 years, just because you grew up in a family that loves Jesus, just because you know the right answers, because you can talk about these doctrines and debate all these different things, just because you know all this stuff doesn't mean jack if you're not living in such a way to show God you love him because he first loved you. Hear me right. There's nothing in the gospel that says we earn any of our salvation, but there is effort in the process of being saved. You will follow Jesus. You will become more disciplined in your pursuit of him. You will look more like him. You will stop doing some things and you will start doing some other things. And if you are living in sin right now that goes contrary to who God is, and you think just because you do all the religious stuff that you're going to be in heaven, welcome to the 82 percenters we read about from CBS. It doesn't mean jack squat. What it means is, does God say, no, you're mine because I put my mark on you and sealed you with my Holy Spirit, and now there's a life change that's happened, and you look more today like Jesus than you did last year. The truth of the matter is, many of us will go blind into the fire. We'll think we're on the right side, and we'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. What a horrible day. And some of us in here, brothers, sisters, we call, will be separated from us and spend eternity under the weight of the wrath of God. Please do not leave this place without asking God to make clear to you where you are. And man, when you believe that to be the case, when you know that's a possibility, it changes how you live. Turn to the Lord. Come back to Him. Man, because He's still good. Listen, here's how we know that. Because while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person some might be willing to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Look, We have been saved by the blood of Christ if we are His. Not because we've done something to earn it, but because God has earned it for us in Jesus. And for all those who do not know Him, they face the wrath of God for all eternity in a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there is great suffering. So we cannot live the same as when we walked in here if we really believe that to be true. It has to change how we live now, including how we tell others about this. Can you imagine being there at the day of judgment and somebody that we love and care about looks at you and is like, you knew? You knew? You didn't tell me? Man, I pray none of us have to face that person. I pray that all of us never have to face anyone that we could have told yet did not tell about Jesus. Let us be different 
because of the truths about hell, because of what God hates that he has to do and rather see everybody come to him. Let us be like Jesus who went to seek and save the lost because he loved so much. Let us love him back by loving others that way too. I'm going to pray for us right now. If you have never put your hope and faith in Jesus, today is a day of redemption. Today is a day of repentance. We can put our hope in him right now. I'm going to be standing here to pray with you if you need me, but you do not need me. You need Jesus. And today is the day you can come to him now. First time, hundredth time, just come to him now. Let me pray for us. Father, we need your son more than we need anything. We need him because we need to be saved from our sins. And even if we've already met him, we still need Jesus because every moment we need him just as much as the first time we met him. Lord, he paid the price 2,000 years ago, but we need him now so that we might walk in a way that gives you glory and honor and makes Jesus your son famous. Lord, give us boldness for the gospel. Let us tell others about their need for Jesus, not to scare them out of hell, but to bring them the grace and mercy of Jesus so they might be with you forever because you love us so much you're willing to give him for us. Work in us so that we might love you back the way you've loved us. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen.